Father, we are always in need of more grace and more mercy, but there's this beautiful tension that we are never at need of more salvation. For in Christ Jesus, you have given it exclusively and sufficiently, and so by the power of that one sacrifice, Lord, continue to uh, call the saints to continued repentance, and Lord, may those who are in here Um, who are not yet believers, may they be struck with the weight of the gospel and become saints by repenting. Uh, We pray all this in your name. Amen. My wife and I uh, sat down once to reconcile um, some of our bank account stuff, and we saw this reoccurring charge that we were unsure of where it was from. And so we started snooping around and looking through everything, and we were surprised when we found out what it was. Uh, It was a reoccurring subscription from a toothbrush that we bought our kids. And we live in an era where we are always kind of wonderfully surprised at how cheap things often are, only to find out not long after that there's a catch. There's the fine print. You're on the hook to be billed monthly for this product in order to get it at that price. And for many of us, when it comes to how we ourselves think about the gospel in the church or how those we share the gospel with are responding, we too might be caught off guard by the perceived fine print of the gospel. Eternal salvation, great. Forgiveness, wonderful. But what's the catch? The catch is that I'm not finally fully perfect. Though I'm fully saved, there's still more change. And more than that, I'm supposed to live out my life with a bunch of other imperfect failures just like me. And that we together as the church are supposed to follow Jesus and act on his mission even when the world hates Jesus and the mission of the church? That's the sales pitch. (laughs) But interestingly enough, it's not the fine print of the gospel. In fact, it's the bold lettering of it. The gospel, its subject is the triune glory of God. That's what the gospel is all about. But its object is us. It is the church. It is for the church that Christ died. And in fact, our passage today, uh, we read of Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, one of the chief apostles, his denial of Jesus. And also Jesus begins to warn the broader group of disciples of a drastic coming change to their ministry after Jesus' resurrection. This is our third week sitting with Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. And so far, Jesus has been powerfully reorienting the disciples' understanding of themselves and of the mission of God in light of what the cross means. Two weeks ago, we saw there's going to be a new feast for the people of God, the Lord's Supper with Jesus at the center. Last week, we saw there's going to be a new authority and a new greatness, that is humble service of others, but with Jesus at the center. And today, there's now a new people and a new mission, the church, with Jesus at the center of it. And what's interesting today is all of this is connected to hearts and affections. We see first, we're going to see the heart of Jesus for his disciples as he prays for Peter and the disciples. Then we see the heart of Jesus' disciples as those who are sinful and often fall away. And lastly, we see the heart of the mission of the disciples as we go and we endure hard things for the cause of Christ. In other words, today we're not only looking at things written to Peter and to the 12 specifically, but these have applications to us as individual believers and as corporate believers in the church. Jesus' love for the disciples saves them. Jesus' love for the disciples assures them. And Jesus' love for the disciples sends them out into a world that often does not love back. 
And this is our main point this morning. We're going to see that the church is a repentant people on a dangerous mission sustained by a gracious Savior. And we're going to see three realities at play here in the prediction of Peter's denial and the commission of the church. First, we're going to see that the church is sustained by a sovereign hope. Second, the church is resilient in repentance. And lastly, that the church is militant by mercy. So kids, if you're keeping track in your bulletins, those are going to be the three main points today. And this comes right on the heels of last week's text where uh, the disciples are at the table arguing about who is going to be perceived as the greatest. And in order to kind of quelch that conversation, Jesus pulls back the veil to the spiritual reality at play to show them that none of these men are the greatest. That they are, in fact, mere humans at play in a world with realities beyond their understanding. There is a spiritual battle unfolding even there at the Lord's table. And Jesus begins by saying this. He says, Simon, Simon. And so that's Peter. Um, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. And so you'll notice that Jesus is specifically talking to Peter here at one point. But he's also talking to the broader group of disciples. And we know that because first, when Satan, Jesus says Satan demanded to have you, uh, that is a Texas-sized y'all. That is a plural you. And so if Paul and Ellen talk to you, they talk to you as Satan does. Um, so just beware. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, we, we see that, that you know, he doesn't just want Judas, who he already took. He doesn't just want Peter, but he's specifically being targeted out. Satan wants y'all. He wants you and me. He wants nothing more than to cause us harm. But also we see that Jesus assumes that it's not just Peter who is going to fall away, but all the brothers are going to be needed to have strengthening. You see that? Everyone's going to need mercy in this. And the Bible generally presents a threefold challenge to the trials Christians face as we follow Jesus. They're often categorized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world is that which is external to us. It's natural disasters and and noisy neighbors. The uh, flesh is that which is inside of us. That's our own hearts, our sinful tendencies. And then the last is the devil. That's the spiritual war that's at play around us with Satan and his demons. And in two weeks, when the prediction of Peter's denial actually comes to, to fruition in Luke's gospel, we'll dive in more into the implications of the flesh. That is our own sinful heart and how it needs a savior. But Jesus today is drawing out in specific uh, the challenges of the devil. That is going to be in verses 31 and 32. And then the challenges of the world. And that's going to be in verses 36 and 37. And he's doing this as he's about to leave. He's giving marching orders to his disciples as they're about to leave the roost. And he doesn't want them to be caught off guard or unaware at how difficult life will be. And he says there's all sorts of things that will cause you trial, that wants to seek to do you harm. But he says, in the face of such opposition, notice what's important. In fact, he's going to call his disciples to do something. But before he calls his disciples to do anything, look at this text and notice that Jesus is drawing the disciples' attention in the midst of all the challenges that await to what Jesus has already done. Did you see that? He says, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. And this is our first point this morning. The church is sustained by sovereign hope. Now, I do realize, conveniently, that that's the name of our church. Uh, Good brand name recognition here. Uh, 
But I, I, I use this intentionally because none of you will reach the gates of glory because of Sovereign Hope Church. But if anyone is to reach the gates of glory unharmed eternally, it will be because of the church's sovereign hope, Jesus Christ, our great defender. You see, the cosmic battle around us is real. We might seem to be enlightened and technologically advanced, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a spiritual reality at play around us. Satan is active. He is powerful. He has authority and influence in this world. And were you to face him in open battle on the field alone, you will lose. But we are not left alone. Martin Luther captures this well in a song we'll sing later this morning. He writes this, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of lords, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Without Jesus, we are in a losing battle, but because of Jesus, the church has And our surpassing hope in Jesus is revealed in two contrasts in this text that Jesus is giving to us. First, notice how Satan makes requests, but it's Jesus' will that rules ultimately. Jesus tells the disciples that Satan demanded to have them, like a petulant child or an offended egomaniac. He can make a lot of noise. He's stomping his feet. He's throwing a temper tantrum. He's making his will known, but at the end of it, all it is is a request. It's a demand. He has the power to be loud and to be bold, but he has no power to actually achieve anything apart from what God desires. You see, in the book of Job, God flexes his power over creation, and he says this to the ocean itself. Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. I'd like all of you to try that one day. We don't really have oceans here. Maybe go to Flathead Lake. Maybe go to little ripples that are uh, on the rivers around town. And I want you to try and tell those ripples and waves where they stop and see how effective you are. Take comfort, little flock. Satan, who is himself created, is not God. But he himself is also under the control of this sovereign God. As Martin Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. He can make a lot of noise, he can rattle the cage, but he cannot take any of that which Jesus wishes to hold. He rebukes the efforts of Satan to take that which Jesus himself desires. And that's because Jesus doesn't make requests. Jesus rules. Now, he does pray here, and that's because if you remember in our incarnation series at Advent, Jesus is here physically on earth. And so he's praying uh, through the Spirit to the Father as we do as believers. But what's different is that Jesus' prayer is an extension of his rule, right? If, 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 if someone in here was sick and you asked me to pray for you, which is what James commends, and I say, hey, I'm going to pray that you're healed. And then uh, once you're healed, I want you to start doing A, B, and C. You'd think that maybe you should find a different church. You don't need to go to the church essentials class. It's like, this guy's a little wonky about what he's talking about, to speak that boldly. But that's what Jesus does, right? He prays. He says, Peter, I'm praying that you won't fail. And then what does he do? He gives instructions to Peter as to what Peter is supposed to do when Jesus's prayer has proven to be effective. 
You see, Satan is loud, but only Jesus is Lord. He is in control. But it's not just a difference in power. It's a difference in quality. Notice in this text, what does Satan want to do? He wants to sift. He wants to desecrate. He wants to destroy and cause doubt. But what does Jesus want to do? He wants to consecrate. He wants to save. He wants to endure. He wants to make sure. You see, the devil wants to use trials and hardships in life, all three of those things, the devil, the world, and your own flesh, to try to convince you that you don't have what it takes. This is too hard. You're not good enough. Or maybe he flips the script and he says, Jesus isn't good enough. He can't help you. You've read your Bible. You've said those prayers. And what does he say inside? He says, run, run, run to me. Run away with me. And here you'll find safety. Here you'll find comfort. I am looking out for your good. But here Jesus shows us that the devil has no compassion for you. He will sell you whatever he needs to, not to care for you, but to cause you harm. But notice on the other hand, how Jesus overrides and uses at the same time those same difficult trials, but he does so for what? To bless us, to assure us, and to prove himself to us. You see, in the midst of trials, Jesus is after our own good. We cannot have such a small view of God to think that God only works through that which is good. If that's the God you have, you don't have a God. You've got a whimsical fairy godmother. (laughs) There is much in this world that is not good, but the good God of Scripture uses and permits even evil to accomplish his good. And it's all too easy for us, isn't it, when things get hard, for us to actually, we wouldn't speak in these terms, but it's what we do, and it's shocking to realize. We ascribe to the devil the character of Jesus, and we ascribe to Jesus the character and motivations of the devil. When things are hard, we think, what what are you doing? I can't handle this, God. Do you even care about me? I can't do this. Are you asleep at the wheel? I don't have what it takes. You're trying to trip me up? Are you trying to prove that I'm broken and I'm a sinner? And what do we say when Satan begins to tempt us with sin? This is so easy. It's so clear. This is so simple. This is so safe. If only Jesus would offer me something this easy. But we flipped the wheels. Jesus desires to help. Satan only hates. See how drastic the heart of Jesus is versus the heart of the devil. Satan wants you to give up in the midst of your trials. Jesus wants you to go on. Jesus is a good king, so good that he uses what is hard to make us into what we could never be on our own. And how does he do it? What's the means of that? If you're looking back at verse 32, the means of that is our faith. He's using all of his heartfelt affection for his disciples, all of his sovereign power in prayer to keep our faith. He says, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And so that word fail in Greek is is a terminal word. It's an entire snuffing out. And so in the engineering world, it'd be referred to as something like a catastrophic failure. A catastrophic failure is defined as a sudden and total failure of a given component. Another says that it's a failure that cannot be put right. In other words, when the gasket on your garden hose fails, that's a common failure, and you're probably going to get a little bit wet, and it'll be frustrating. 
When the gasket on the International Space Station fails, that's a catastrophic failure, and your insides go to your outsides and you die. Okay? That's a big deal. That's the language he's using here with this fail. There are all sorts of failures, in a sense, but there are catastrophic failures, things you cannot come back from. And Jesus here is praying that we will not have, against the will of the devil, a catastrophic failure. You see, the church is first and foremost a community whose faith is sustained, not by our mere intellect, not by our mere strength to hold on to it, but by the sovereign king who gives us faith and holds our hand to the cross. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. How might we want Jesus to pray for us in the midst of our trials? What do you think? He doesn't say, hey, Pete, Satan demanded to have you, but don't worry, I've prayed that things won't get hard. I've prayed that your friends won't fail. I've prayed that your health won't fail. I've prayed your finances won't fail. Or even I've prayed that you won't fail. Jesus didn't say any of those things. But what did he say? I have prayed that your faith will not fail. In all things, Jesus seeks to hold you in faith. And he's good for it. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about in Galatians, he says to those who think they've gone past Jesus's mercy, they said, what, having been begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Moreover, Jesus himself says in John chapter six, he says, all the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other places, none shall be able to snatch them out of my hand. And so I ask you, what trials, temptations, or traumas have you felt lately? And how have you processed them? Have you responded in the midst of them? You see, it is Satan who wants you to see those things and think yourself as a failure or to think that Jesus has failed. But your sovereign king has chosen to use those same trials to show the devil, to show yourself, and to show the watching world that we serve a king who does not fail. That when he grants salvation to his church, they endure in faith because of the object of it. Jesus is the faithful king who gives faith to the lost. And see, we must know this when things get hard, that we have a Jesus who stands behind everything, calling us to go on and to rely on him because the truth is we can't do any of it on our own. We have to begin with a sovereign hope because quite quickly, if it's anything other than Jesus, then you'll be disappointed and caught off guard. And this is our second point this morning. And this is where we see Peter being caught off guard by his own failings. And this is where we see the church is a people resilient in repentance. A people resilient in repentance. And what's interesting is, notice again, if you have your Bible open, verses 31 and 32, notice how Jesus is trying to affirm Peter by pointing to Jesus' sovereign power and prayer for him. He's like, hey, look, look at this. Look at what I'm doing for you. Remember me, the Savior you've been following, the Savior of the world, the Son of God in the flesh, that the one who said that you've seen me raise people from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. That dude, the guy who makes demons run away. Do you remember him? Yeah, he's prayed for you. But what does Peter take comfort in? Not in Jesus, but in himself, right? 
He begins with his own I am statements, which is often a very bad place to start. Let's put our hope in Jesus's I am statements and leave ours at the door. Um, and, and so what's happening here is, is he's tuning this out. You know, much like when you fly on an airplane uh, and they begin the, their safety presentation, we put our headphones in right away and we assume this isn't for me. Uh, maybe that's what happens when we come into church and we're sitting, as I often do, even in the pastoral prayer. It's a time for me to rest, for me to think about my sermon. This prayer isn't for me. I don't need this maybe for somebody else, but look what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so Luke has transitioned from the argument on greatness, but Peter hasn't. He's still caught in this. He says to Jesus, don't waste your prayers. I don't need them. He's like, Tom, I have a bad feeling about Thomas over here. Uh, maybe you should pray for him. Thomas seems like a guy who needs a title that maybe needs a prayer of assurance, okay? Uh, so I'm good. I'm ready to go. There's two verbs he's using that's saying, like, I'm going to do this. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And yet what's interesting here is we st- still see Peter's blindness and our own blindness Because why is Jesus telling this to Peter? It's not ultimately for himself. It's for the benefit of everyone else. So that you might turn and strengthen the brothers. And what is this application of? What did Jesus just say? That the greatest among you must become as your servant. And here Jesus is saying, serve. And what's he saying? Me? I would never do any of this. I can't serve like this. He's so blinded by his own sense of infallibility that he can only think of himself. And so Jesus, being the sovereign, kind Lord, brings the heat. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The language of Jesus' prediction here is brutal. The tense in the Greek is one that carries a full and total denial. It is a perfect denial. In two weeks, we're going to see this beginning in verse 54. We're going to see Peter's denial in slow, agonizing detail. And to all human eyes and to anyone who reads that passage, it seems like a catastrophic failure. And yet the same Jesus who predicts this denial is the same Jesus who in the same breath predicts what? His restoration. And how is he restored? Look again at verse 32. He would turn again. This isn't the same word used in the New Testament for repentance, but it carries the same idea. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus. And remarkably, Jesus here is showing us that turning away from sin and turning to Jesus is not just the doorway or the checkbox we have to get into Christianity. He's here showing Peter, the one who is the first confessor of the church, that that same act of repentance is also the seatbelt that keeps us in the car. Martin Luther once said that when our Heavenly Father willed that the life, would, that the life of the disciple would be one of repentance, he willed that the whole life would be one of repentance. You see, Peter's confidence is going to fail. Peter's obedience is going to fail. 
But Peter's faith is not going to fail. How do you know that? We're going to read it, and it's going to look like it certainly does. How do we know his faith won't fail? How do you know that your faith won't fail? When you turn again. When you come back to the object of your faith. By turning back to Jesus, we show that though we have failed in sin, we have not failed in faith. And many of us, we could bristle at this in two ways, both of which are arrogant. Some of us, and actually both are expressed in Peter. The whole of our life is expressed in Peter. <laughs> Wherever you are, Peter's got a scene for you. And so in verse 22, uh, Peter says, no way, I am too good to sin. He's boasting in his own goodness. Fast forward to where we're going to see Peter end after he's convicted of sin in verse 52. He's now, no way, my sin is too big for you. Now he's boasting that his sin is too big for Jesus. We often come with these man-centered worldviews seeking either I'm too great to need your forgiveness or my sins are too big. I've been too powerful in sin for the cross to actually atone for me. But here we see that the church is always and only made up of sinners who turn back. Jesus' words here assume that all of the disciples will be scattered, and we will see that. All of them will need strengthening. Peter will momentarily fall away. The disciples will momentarily fall away. Doubting Thomas will momentarily fall away. It will look exactly like Satan is doing what he wanted to do. He is sifting them, and they're proving themselves worthless. But Jesus is working in the midst of what Satan seeks to sift in order to shore up what Jesus has permitted to save. That is faith in a faithful Savior. Faith only fails when it fails to turn back. Now, we can have common failures. We all do. All sin is ultimately a lack of faith. But faith that is not catastrophic in its failure, faith that endures to the end is faith that comes back. The gospel is not for those who never wander. The gospel is for those who always come back. And when we see sin, and when we sin, when it seems we've sinned in an irreparable way, when it seems we've experienced the catastrophic failure, when we begin to wonder, are we the one who has committed the unforgivable sin? Have we blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? What do we do? We turn again. And when we turn again, we know that we've done so because Jesus keeps us because his faithfulness is greater than your fickleness. His sovereignty is greater than your sin. His promise is greater than our death. He will not let you fail. It is all too easy for us inside the church and those outside the church to just call the church a bunch of hypocrites. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you sit here week after week and you say, man, I am the most miserable wretch and the cool thing is we can just let the cross say that for us. Like, that's not new news. The cross doesn't exactly paint you in the best light, sweetheart. And so, like, we know, we know we're a mess because Jesus says so. But it's not the presence of sin that makes somebody a hypocrite. It's the absence of repentance. It's when we think that we can be a saint without repentance when we think we can be righteous without returning, 
But what we see here is in the church, no one comes into God's grace apart from those whose faith turns them around. The door to the church is shaped like a U-turn. There's no, st- no straight sticks in here. <laughs> you can't make it. You boast in what you've done. You boast in where you're going and you won't make it through the door. But to turn back is to find your way forward. So when we fail, when we fall, what do we do? We do what we did in the first place. We turn again. We come back. And Jesus is faithful to do what he's promised in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to this Jesus today. And what do redeemed, turned, and forgiven sinners do? They strengthen other redeemed, turned, and forgiven sinners with humble mercy and full hope. Isn't this what Jesus says in verse 32? He says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We remind others that what gets us through life is not our success, but Jesus's. And it's actually the call to strengthen the brothers that's the only imperative in the first portion of this text. This is the attention of Jesus' words to Peter. You go, having sinned and repented, and strengthen those who also need the wonderful message of you're sinful, but you can repent. Come to the well of grace and work heartily to call others to it as well. See, there are certain sins the New Testament talks about which might disqualify someone from vocational ministry. As we mentioned, as a congregational church, if I act in specific ways, either in public or in private, you are at right and actually obedient to rebuke me publicly and to remove me from ministry. But this is not talking about vocational ministry here. And what we're seeing here is that there is no sin that disqualifies any saint from Christian ministry. The biggest sinner in the church, Peter, who denied him three times, began to be the pillar of the church in Acts. You see, we're going to baptize people here in this church who will at some point sin again. And in those moments, God has chosen for other redeemed sinners to hold out the ministry of grace. There's a meme I've seen from a movie I haven't, and it's James Franco who's standing on a a gallows with a noose around his neck, uh, and he's looking to the guy next to him and he just says, first time, huh? That's the ministry of the saints. Is to those who have come and felt the wound of sin, to those who have tripped up and failed their Savior, we look and say, Tuesday, come back. This is what it looks like to strengthen. Just this, this morning, I heard the wonderful news of a sister in this church who made a costly decision to say no to sin that might cost her financially and relationally and certainly emotionally. And it is a wonderful privilege to say, let us strengthen her. Let us show her that it is far more costly to engage in sin than it is to follow Jesus. And though it's hard, it's hard together. And we are here to strengthen you. That's what we do for our brothers and sisters. We run to them and hold out the hope that we have. We call them to Jesus. We apply his grace and we strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. So I ask you, has Jesus given you the gift of repentance? Have you come to him in faith? Then he has equipped you for the work of ministry. He has equipped you to both seek to be strengthened and to strengthen. How might you do that? That is a great question. You should apply that by asking someone in here today how you might strengthen them in their walk with Jesus.
Don't overthink it. Just ask it. I can try and surprise my wife as to where she wants to eat, but I found it easier to just ask her. <laughs> so do the same. You've got someone sitting next to you. Everybody, except for Amanda. Amanda, I'll ask Eric for you, okay? Um, <laughs> ask the person sitting next to you, how can I strengthen you in your walk with Jesus? Start there, report back next week. We'll see if God does any good by it. This is the ministry of the church. It is, in a sense, inward. We care for one another. And we have to do that because that's only half of the ministry of the church. And in fact, this is often, though it sometimes hurts the most because we know these people, it's actually the least hostile part of the mission of the church. Jesus calls us to both strengthen the saved, but then he also commissions us to go and to seek the lost. We are in Jesus' words to teach all that he has commanded us to those who are inside faith. But what else are we to do? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is where Jesus turns next in what is perhaps for you a little bit of a peculiar passage. In verse 35, he begins saying this, and he says to them, that's to the broader group of disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nope, nothing. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is calling back to two experiences these disciples had in the book of Luke already. The first is in chapter 9, where he sent out exclusively these 12 apostles uh, with the task of preaching the gospel. And then in verse 10, uh, Jesus sends out presumably these 12 disciples along with um, 60 others, 72 total disciples. They sent them out with the explicit message to preach the gospel, but in each instance, Jesus gave them a list of what not to bring. So you're not going to need these things. And I think he does that to show that the kingdom is there. Jesus is there in the flesh. The physical provision of God is here, dwelling in their midst. They have no lack for anything. But now, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for life after his death and resurrection, Jesus says, pack your things. Get your overnight bag. Bring a lunch. We're going to be on the road for a while. You see, the commission to go out and preach the gospel is the same. Jesus isn't changing the commands. Go and preach the gospel. But he is showing us that the circumstances are going to be a bit more difficult. While Jesus was on earth, most of the ministry opposition and hostility was targeted at him. But Jesus has prepared his disciples uh, in the book of John more specifically that once he leaves, the target changes. The head's not there, but the body is. Jesus is gone, but his church remains, and they're going to hate the church in the same way they hated Jesus. And that's why Jesus calls them back to what? To confidence. That first time when I sent you out without anything, did you lack anything? No. And now I'm saying like, hey, go be ready for this and bring some supplies. Do you assume that you'll lack anything? No. The provision is there. And where is their provision? What does Jesus tie it to? What does Jesus tie our provision in evangelism and the mission of the church to? our very hope in redemption. He says that this opposition is part of the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant. He quotes this from Isaiah 53, saying that he was numbered among the transgressors. He says that what the scripture wrote of me is coming to fulfillment. And this is a text which brings to light the very heart of the gospel. That is Jesus's substitutionary atonement for sinners. He was numbered with us. He took our transgressions. He was counted as sinful so that we might be counted as saints. He was numbered with the sinners so that he might save sinners. And if you've never heard the gospel, that's it. You sinned, Jesus didn't. Jesus died so that you might not. We come to that in faith. We are restored not just 
to not being dead. We're restored to the glory of triune God and his love for us and his purpose that consumes not just what we do on Sundays, but all of life. We are one to the one who seeks not to sift us, but the one who eternally can satisfy us. And you've heard me say today to the the saint that, hey, if you mess up, repent. That is true without end. But if you have not yet done that, Augustine reminds us, he says that the Lord has promised today for your repentance, but not tomorrow for your procrastination. You are responsible now to realize your sin and come to this faithful Jesus. He has been numbered for your sins so that you might be saved by his mercy. And what does this numbering mean? This missional numbering, he's quoting Isaiah 53, not actually in the context of atonement, but actually in the context of the mission of the church. What is that except to say that the mission of the church is tied to the atonement of Jesus Christ? It shows us that because Jesus came to save a mess like you and me, that our ministry on behalf of Jesus is in and among messy people as well. Because Jesus was numbered among the transgressors in order to be the exclusive means of salvation, he has called the church to be the exclusive messengers of salvation. And so what are we to do? We're to gird our loins and live out the mission that Jesus has commissioned the church. This is what we're doing. We've been sent out. He showed us last week that the true motivation for Christian greatness is tied in himself. And here the mission of the church is tied up in Jesus himself. Because you have been saved, you have been sent. Because Jesus has provided for you salvation, he's going to use you to share the message of salvation with others. He sought us, we seek others. He entered into our hostile world, we now live faithfully in it as well. You see, Jesus not only sends us to one another to strengthen each other, but he sends us to the lost to bear witness to the God who accepts us when we repent and come to him in faith. We all want, we want, at this church, we want to be a healthy church. That's one of our core values. And we say healthy church, we want to avoid the poles. There are some churches that merely focus on this internality and they're encouraging one another, but it's not a full encouragement because it's not actually getting outside the doors. And then on the other side, we see churches that only care about going to the lost and they save somebody and then they just leave them to die outside of the vine. There's no ongoing teaching. There's no ongoing grace. There's no ongoing gospel proclamation. But the mission of the true church is both to use the gospel that saves and apply it to the church in a context that sanctifies, that progressively works for the glory of God. And one big question we have here, though, is what do we do with our swords? Right? You guys came here today. All of you were like, I got this sword. What do I do with it? This is the text for you. Praise Jesus, right? We're going to know what to do with our swords. So after calling his disciples to this wartime mentality... Uh, the disciples say this. Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And you have to imagine Jesus at this moment kind of feels a little bit like Harry Dunn. Just when I think you couldn't do anything dumber, you say something like this. Now, it's interesting because Jesus does tell them to buy swords. And then he affirms and says two swords is enough. But I think this is actually really important in our world today, uh, where sometimes we view the Lord's kingdom as a physical kingdom here on earth, to bear in mind what Jesus is actually saying here. You see, I think the context is showing us how foolish this question and how non-literal Jesus' answer is. Now, you should say, well, why? Okay, let's read God's word in light of God's word. Show me that in God's word. Well, first, if you look forward to the text that Paul will be preaching next week, 
in a few mere hours, his disciples are going to draw swords and Jesus is going to rebuke them. Secondly, if you think that the total conquest of the world for the gospel requires only two swords, maybe Jesus is a little bit understating that on purpose. But if it were to be a global physical conquest, we might need more than two. But I think that's the point. Because that's enough. You don't need it. You see, there will be opposition. And he does call for war. But just as we rightly understand his call for money bags and knapsacks and sandals as a sign for preparedness, so too the sword here is meant to prepare us for a sign of opposition and the offensive nature of the church. You see, the church isn't meant to just withdraw. This battle is physical, or this battle is not physical. And when we encounter the world, we're going to want to do one of two things. We're either going to want to withdraw entirely from it, or we're going to want to pick up the weapons of the world to vindicate ourselves. But Jesus is calling us to not do either, and instead to trust in him. He calls us to lay down the weapons of the world. And in Matthew 16, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're not to just draw back. We're to be on the march. But what are our weapons? Well, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so here the message of Luke 22 comes full circle again. What are we to do? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. We strive for a faith that by the power of God will not fail and is in fact growing. And what else are we to do? We're to wage war against unbelief. We're to tear down those strongholds. We're to march forward with the message of the gospel. We wage war against strongholds of darkness by preaching Christ and him crucified to those who crucified him and those who might crucify us. I want none of us to have some romantic vision of what following Jesus looks like, even in the context of the church. This life of reliance and repentance and offensive faith is not easy. It is hard. To make it seem easy is actually to belittle the cross. If the wages of sin were meh, we probably didn't need Jesus to die on the cross for us. But because the wages of sin is death, we need the help of someone who defeats death even when we stand in the face of it. You see, you will not want to do this. You will not want to share your gospel. You will not want to stand with the weapons of faith. And you will probably lose friends in the midst of it. You'll probably be called names. You'll maybe run into conflict at work. But we ought to make sure that what is offensive is the cross of Jesus and not our own sinful conduct or attitude or words. We are to stand boldly in the warfare of the gospel and let the cross offend and let sinners afflict where they will. There'll be times where all you want to do is retreat back into the barracks of the church and that is a beautiful refuge. But what is the purpose of the church? After you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Evangelism and missions are not individual efforts. It is a church effort. Are you weary? Come to church, and we will give you that big old emotional butt slap to get on out there in the gospel. We will weep with you when it's hard. We will rejoice with you when God has won much. But the church exists because the church is God's mission. 
There are more souls that Jesus wishes to save, and he has chosen for the church to carry its message there. And here's the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. Look at the full context of Isaiah 53, 12, where he says this. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you see that? Jesus' heart and his prayer encompass all of our life as the church. It's Jesus' will to pray for us that brings us to faith. It's what keeps us in faith, and it's what sustains us in the mission of faith. The same Jesus who prays to keep us is the same Jesus who prays for us in our ministry among the lost. Jesus seeks and saves the lost, and he equips those repentant, once lost sinners to bear that message of salvation among lost sinners. This is what Jesus has done for those who are broken, who come to him in faith, and who live as the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. We ask that you would reveal to us your heart for us, that if we stand here with faith in our hearts, we stand here because Christ has done a work. We stand not on our own power, not because of what we were willing to do, but because of what we were able to do in light of what you have already done on the cross. And so Jesus, draw us into worship and may that worship both help us know what to do when we sin, we take it to the God who's glorious and what to do in the midst of sinners, we call them to the God who is glorious. Lord, we thank you that on our own, we will fail and scatter. But because of the gospel, you bring those failures together by the gospel of grace and you equip them into a church that carries your message to the nations, to every tongue and tribe, so that they might join with us and say, this is our God. 